Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I just finished reading a book called About Grace, and it's not a theological textbook. It's a novel about a man named Winkler who dreams the future. His dreams of things to happen actually come true, which would be quite a gift, right? I mean, imagine it. Dreaming the essay questions on your comprehensive examination before you take it. Dreaming about your call before you ever start the placement interviews, knowing absolutely certain where you would go. An amazing gift. Until you, like Winkler, have that dream where you're trying to save your daughter and she dies in your arms. And then you spend all of your life running away from that gift. That's the novel about grace. I thought of that novel when I first read the text for this morning. Not because the disciples are running away from Jesus. No, but because the way in which that novel is able to capture that moment in time when your dream comes true. The novelist is a, is a master at poetic description, and at that moment it is as if nature itself comes alive with meaning. Winkler is standing there on the shore of the sea, and suddenly he catches the scent of something familiar on the breeze. He sees a flash of light on the water, and as expected, he hears the wind rustling in the trees, and in that moment, life for him becomes more certain. He is in the midst of a dream coming true. And I wondered if that's what it was like for those disciples in that boat. What was it like to awaken to the knowledge that that was Jesus? You see, John is, is not like my novelist. He doesn't offer us enough description. He's rather cryptic in his presentation. He begins by telling us that the disciples did not know this stranger on the shore. He ends by telling us that they didn't ask him who he was because they knew it was Jesus. But between that not knowing and the knowing, a lot of mystery occurs. And it makes you wonder, how did those disciples know? Well, for John, it all begins with a question. Early in the morning, this stranger on the shore throws out a question to these men who are fishing. And it's a question that mysteriously he seems to already know the answer to. He calls out, you don't have any food, do you? He doesn't say fish. <laughs> He actually says food, not, not food of some great luxurious banquet, actually just a small dish of food, usually containing fish. You don't even have that, do you? Now, now in John, when Jesus asks a question, it usually leads to a wrong answer. That is, the first answer that is most obvious is actually the most wrong. 
You remember the things people say, Nicodemus, you know, how is a man supposed to be born again when he's always supposed to crawl into his mother's womb another time? Or the the woman at the well, well, sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Uh, How are you going to get this living water? You don't have any food, do you? And the disciples answer, no. Makes you wonder if they remembered, if they remembered that time when they were standing before Jesus with food in their hands, food they had bought. Remember they were going through Samaria? And as a Jew is obviously not going to want to have hospitality in the house of a Samaritan, they simply go into the village and they buy some food. They come back to Jesus and they see him in conversation with a woman at the well. The conversation is ending, but they don't know that the kingdom of God is just beginning in that place. And they come before Jesus with this food in their hands and they beg him, Rabbi, eat. And he says, no. He says, I have food that you don't even know about. Now, meanwhile, the woman has gone back into the city and she's told everybody about this Jesus and suddenly the people of the town are coming out to meet Jesus. And he says to the disciples, lift up your eyes. He calls them to look at these people, people from whom they had already bought food. Look at these people. The field is white for the harvest. It's waiting. I have food that you don't know about. And then he says, my food is to accomplish the work of the one who sent me. You wonder if they remembered that out there on the water after the resurrection. When a stranger says, you don't have food, do you? And they said, no. Well, then John tells us that uh, Jesus gives a command and he offers a promise. The command is simple, cast your net on the right side of the boat. But the promise is a little bit more cryptic. He says, and you will find. What? Am I going to find fish? Am I going to find food? Well, he doesn't say. He just says, you will find. And find they do. As the fish begin to fill that net, John's mind fills with a recognition. Did he remember that feeding of the 5,000, that multiplication of fishes? We don't know. But we do know that as they couldn't bring that net in, John couldn't keep it in. And he says to Peter, it is the Lord. And Peter awakens to life, throws on his coat and jumps into the water. Peter obviously was not out there fishing because he wanted fish. He left them, all of them, all of those fish. He left the fish, the boat, his brethren, and he jumped in the water. Why? Because that stranger could be his Jesus. Luther says that to have a God is nothing other than to entrust yourself wholly to him. And that's what Peter does. Entrusts himself wholly to this stranger on the shore. But when they get there, they find that that stranger is entrusting himself to them. He has food that they didn't know about, not just a breakfast of fish, but a mission. 
Remember what he says to Peter, feed my sheep. Jesus enters into their daily labor and awakens them to mission in his kingdom. That, I believe, is what John wants you to hear in this account. Not this miraculous catch of fish, not some strange interpretation of the symbolism of the number. No, John just wants you to see Jesus awakening people to food they don't know about, awakening them to mission. Well, actually, you know, you, you think about how John begins the account, right? He says, after this, Jesus revealed himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. John wants you to know the way he did it. When Jesus entrusted himself to Mary after the resurrection, how did he do it? He called out her name, right? He called out her name. When Jesus entrusted himself to the disciples in the upper room and to Thomas, how did he do it? He showed them his hands and his side. This time, John wants you to see it's different. Jesus doesn't call out their name. He doesn't show them his hands and his side. Instead, he draws them in in to service in his kingdom. He appears in the midst of their daily labor and awakens them to the kingdom of God, drawing them out of darkness into light, out of ignorance into recognition, out of fishing into discipleship, out of having nothing into having an abundance that can be counted but can't be contained, out of seeing a stranger into seeing their Lord, out of seeing their Lord into seeing a servant who feeds them breakfast and feeds them in that ministry of God. That's what John wants us to see in this lesson, and that is such good news for us, because sometimes it's very easy to forget what you're doing in the kingdom of God. Very easy. If you've ever been to my office, you'll notice that I have this uh, painting on the wall. It's a watercolor. It was done by James Disney. He was a student here back when I was a student. And I remember seeing it for the first time on the second floor of the library during one of those student art exhibitions, and the painting amazed me. I used to go up there several times just to stand in front of it. The background is very black. It's a very stark painting, and in the center floating there is this unblemished lamb. His legs are tied and the head is tilted back as if the neck is open for slaying. Disney painted it the year his father died, and he titled it Good Friday. And I used to stand there because every time I looked at that painting, it reminded me of what my Savior did for me. Well, when I received the call to come to the seminary years ago, my congregation gave me a monetary gift, and I took some of that money and I used it to buy that painting. I called James Disney up, introduced myself, and I asked him for that painting. And he said, well, it was very sentimental, but I could commission another piece. And that's what I did. So it's, it's in my office. But you know, after it's been hanging there for quite some time, it, it no longer spoke to me about God's work in my life. It um, was simply a work of art hanging on my wall. Until one day when a student came and visited he was sitting in the chair, and uh, 
we were talking about one of his sermons, and uh, humorously he said to me, he said, you know, he says, as I look at you, I see behind your head all of these books about homiletical theory. He says, as if you're the master of homiletical wisdom going to impart this stuff to me. And we kind of laughed, and as we laughed, I glanced to see what was behind him, and there it was, this painting. And I realized that this student was someone for whom my Savior died. Now, I know it sounds silly, but it changed the nature of that conversation. It always does, doesn't it? When you know that the person you're with is someone for whom God in Christ died. In that moment, uh, I was awakened again to my involvement in my Savior's mission. It's good to have this text because it's so easy for us to fall away from our vocation. <laughs> you have the vocation of being a parent, right? And when you first become a parent, it is a wonderful, holy joy holding that child and imagining that God has placed this child into your care. But when you do it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, soon you kind of fall away from being the parent. You're the person who finds out who threw what first and is explaining, you know, you got to wear those shoes. Or you have the vocation of being a student. God's called you into that vocation. You were excited about coming to the seminary, learning this theology. You, you believed your devotional life would deepen, and then you're not even here one year and that devotion has gone out the door, and it didn't even have the courtesy to leave you a note. Or you're a faculty member, a staff person who's worked here for years, right? and an economic downturn tempts you to see yourself as just a line on someone's budget, just a human resource at this institution. It's easy to fall away from what we were called to be, which is why it's such a blessing that this story is told today, because John reminds you that when you can no longer hear your name, when you no longer see the wounds in his hand and his side, your Savior is searching for you. He will awaken you, even now, to service in his kingdom, for he knows your name. He died for you, and he draws you into service in his kingdom. That, that is the good news of this story. That is John's story about grace. <laughs> And unlike the uh, novel that I read, you can never really finish this story. John himself tells you of all of the things that Jesus did, if all of those things were to be written into a book, well, the world couldn't contain the books that were written. Perhaps that's why John wants you to see how it happened. So that you see. So that you see Jesus coming today. 
telling you that you are more than just a parent. You are more than just a student. You are more than a human resource. You are a child of God. He knows your name. He died for you. And he's risen to draw you into service in his kingdom. You are now part of his story about grace. And that story never ends. Amen.